Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. Uh, I'm thrilled to be back in the studio this afternoon uh, with a very, very special guest who I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to speak to today. And before we get started, uh, just a couple of show notes. If you're listening and you would like to join in our conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can do so by calling 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. And also be sure to follow us on our social media pages. We are Women to Watch Talk on Twitter and Women to Watch Media on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, you can um, find out all about the events that we're involved in and, and where we're headed next by visiting womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net. Um, I'd also like to give a, a shout out to Christina Jones, who's sitting across from me today in the studio, and she's going to be um, the head of our business development, new head of business development for Women to Watch Media. So I want to say thank you and welcome to the show, to Christina. Um, so I'm thrilled, as I mentioned, to, to introduce to you our very special guest this afternoon. Her name is Soledad O'Brien, and Soledad is an award-winning journalist uh, speaker, author, and philanthropist. She anchors and produces uh, the Hearst Television political magazine program called Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien. She is also the founder and CEO of Starfish Media Group and reports for HBO, Real Sports, uh, the PBS NewsHour, WebMD, and has also authored two books. And I probably have missed a couple of a couple of things, but I'd like to say welcome to the show, Sola Dad. Thank you so much. No, you did not miss a thing. Did You're I get it all? <laughs> Everything. All of it. Oh, yes. Terrific. <laughs> terrific. I try to try to be thorough. There's, you know, really um so much um, in, in the notes that I pulled together in my research of you and your career um, and your life story, and I, I really hope that I can get uh, most of it in this afternoon. But thank you so much for joining me. I know how busy it's you are. It's my pleasure. Yeah. You bet. So listen, I, I would love to start out with um, your upbringing and, and your growing up years in New York and um, have you talk a little bit about what it was like to be born and raised in, in St. James, New York, which I understand is the sure, north shore sure. of Long Island. Yeah, um, it's great. I think it's a very small town. Yeah. Um, everybody you went to elementary school, you went to middle school with, and then you'd go on to high school. Um, pretty tiny, I think pretty uh, close-knit town. Everybody kind of knew everybody's business. Um you know, I think in some ways it was amazing because it was very safe. I think that was a kind of an era in the 1960s, 1970s, where you, there were, you know, you just never felt afraid. You never, you went outside all day and played and came back and there was, you know, never any issue. Um, you know, I, my family was one of the few uh, diverse families in the community, and I think that was always a little bit of a challenge for us. Uh, my mom's black, my dad's Australian and white, and I think that made us stand out a bit in that town where they didn't have a lot of racial diversity, uh, not a lot of anything diversity. 
Uh, and, uh, and certainly sometimes that was um, a challenge, I think. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, didn't, I didn't have anything else to compare it to. So um, there were things about it that were really great. Well, you know, it's interesting to me, especially in, in the climate today, um, growing up that way and, and having your parents, as you mentioned, um, you know, being from different backgrounds and there's always people that are going to um, not understand that and people who are obviously supportive of that, that your parents were not, um, you describe them as kind of quiet activists and, and they didn't um, dwell too much on the hardships of that. But tell yeah, me. you know, I think that they were just living their lives. And I think a lot of people who just live their lives and kind of get done. My parents very much were educators. And so I think their focus for us was our education. They had moved to Long Island because they had good public schools. And, and that was the goal that, you know, we'd go to a good school and have good opportunities because of that schooling. And I think in their minds, nothing else really mattered beyond that. If there were some challenges, some issues along the way. Well, you know, you just get through them because you have this opportunity to go to a good school, a good public uh, elementary, middle, and then high school. So, I, you know, I think that that's what they really focused on for us. Yeah. W- were there ever any times when you were young, Soledad, that you, you were afraid? Um, you know, that... Gosh, never. Never. Oh, okay. Never. No, never. I mean, it's, again, I think, you know, very, very safe. Certainly, as a diverse person in a pretty non-diverse world, you often felt like, wow, I'm never going to date anyone in this town. Probably because my parents were completely against it. But also because you stuck out a little bit. So I think it was more that. I never, ever felt afraid, ever. That's... I felt bored. I knew that I was going to leave Long Island because I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> and I, really, I was. I, I wanted to go to New York City at some point and, and work in the city. I loved going into New York City. My parents always had an apartment in New York City. Yeah. And, um, and even did a reverse commute. They ended up moving into the city. And a lot of people who lived in Long Island when I was growing up had fled the city. You know, the last thing they wanted to do was, was stay in the city. So I think my parents even had a different mindset about it. Yeah. Well, so did you always, then I'll, I'll ask this question, did you always have the, the aspiration to be a journalist and be in media? No, no. I was a pre-med in college, and I, I really, because of my good background in, in medicine, actually, I ended up doing really well in the, an interview that I, I did at WBZ-TV in Boston. Uh, I decided not to go to medical school, and I was interviewed for a production assistant, kind of a low entry-level job in, in uh, TV production and got it, but mostly because I knew a lot about medicine and I was being hired to work with a medical reporter. So on the downside, I had decided not to go to medical school and didn't really know what to do, but on the upside, I was able to use a lot of those skills to, um, to, to carve out a career path uh, in television. Well, tell me, what prompted that decision? Was, you know, was there kind of an aha you know, moment where you... I think I felt uninspired by it. I was taking organic chemistry of my sister, who today is a surgeon, and she sort of asked me, you know, why do you memorize all this stuff? A lot of organic chemistry is just committing stuff to memory. And she said, why are you memorizing all of this? You know, you should be able to deduce it. And she was right. And really, I, you know, I I wasn't that passionate about it. I thought, I think it really was an aha moment in the sense of like, wow, she's right. I'm not passionate about something that is going to require a lot of schooling and also just a lot of time and effort. And so I decided that it wasn't something that I would do. I didn't really know what to do, and I started working at a, at a television station. Okay. So let me ask you this. This is um, something I love to ask my guests. I think that, that all of us have um, a defining moment uh, when we're young that stays with us and, and really kind of um, shapes 
how we make decisions and, and what we do in the future. And, I, and I'm wondering if there was a defining moment for you um, as a young girl that prompted that's a great question. I don't think so. I really think what was very helpful to me was that my parents gave me a very big sense of agency, meaning that they really always made us feel, and not just me, but my brothers and sisters, like, you know, you figure it out. And so I, I think what I've tried to do with my kids is give them those opportunities when something's not working instead of me figuring it out, like you figure it out. What do you think we should do? What, what do you think is a solution? Mm. So I, I guess I always, if there's something that was a strength, was always this sense of like, you know what, I know that within me, I have, an, I have the ability to figure it out. And, and my figuring it out, by the, main, by the way, might be running to 10 other people, but you know, it certainly <laughs> didn't mean I had to solve it by myself. But, but I think I always, in my head, just felt like I'm going to be able to figure out how to do this. And so whether it was my first job in television news or when I decided to leave CNN and start my own production company, all those things that I really didn't know how to do, I really just felt like, well, you know, I'm smart enough to figure this out. I'm going to interview a lot of people. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to try to navigate. I'm going to, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes and learn from those mistakes. Mm. And I, I think that's been sort of the thing that I've done well is to kind of figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's a what a great philosophy, you know. So, tell, when you have when you're in one of those moments where you're feeling a little insecure for whatever reason, you know, just before a major presentation or perhaps an, an interview with someone who's, you know, a big deal, um, tell me how you talk yourself through those moments. Listen, I think one thing, and I advise a lot of the young women who are part of my foundation, the uh, Powerful uh, mm-hmm. Foundation is to tell them to understand how what makes you strong. So, for example, I know when I'm anxious about something, it probably means I'm not prepared because mm-hmm. when I'm prepared, I'm not anxious. So if I'm anxious, that means I probably need to study more. I need to take some notes. I need to have a plan of attack because if I'm anxious, that means I haven't got a really good plan. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I prep for an interview, I, I know when I'm ready because I, I, know, I know that I know what I need. To know right and I use that feeling of a you know a pit in the bottom of my stomach to say you have not done your homework you need to go read this book take more notes and maybe study for another hour and a half and get this done uh, I think it's a lot about just knowing yourself you know a lot to me a lot of success has just been you know knowing um, you know knowing how to read your own gut in a way I know when there are people that I really like and trust around me I know when there's people who I don't like and I really, I mean, one of the biggest upsides of working for yourself is to not work with people you don't like. Mm, you know, yes. To say, listen, and, and that doesn't mean being rude to them. It just means saying, listen, I, I, I do not like the way I feel when we're working on a project together. So said with love, we should not do this again. Mm. And I don't work with them. Yeah. And I think that I've just, as you get older, you know, and what we try to work with our scholars with is that there's like, recognize that feeling in your gut. Put some words to it. You know, when someone makes you feel bad, you need to say, you know what? you make me feel bad. You know what, Jane, you make me feel like I'm, you know, like I'm really smart. You know what, Bob, I don't want to date you because you make me feel <laughs> like I'm not good enough. And you, you yeah. know, you have to kind of say, identify those feelings and then act on them. So if someone makes you feel bad, you move on. If someone makes you feel great, you hang out with them more. If you're dating someone and it feels like, gosh, you know, I just feel feel so good about myself when I'm dating this person. I feel unattractive. I feel you know, not worthy. Well, then ditch that person. We spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with our scholars on that. Yeah. It yeah. really is reading your own gut. Well, I love that because, you know, it's so much about knowing yourself, right? And, and yeah. um, you know, we talk on the show a lot about 
how important it is to reflect and get to know what you do well and what perhaps, you know, um, you, you need to work on. Um, because I think that personal development, you know, always needs to come before career success. If you know who you are, yeah, right? Yeah, I think that's very true, right? Yeah. And you take, I'm a big list maker. I'd like to have a couple of things that I'm working on at any moment. Mm-hmm. I'd like to have the things I'm ticking through. I think those lists reveal for you things, you know, they reveal if you're, I used to have on my to-do list, every year because I do a big resolutions list. So my big resolutions to-do list was always, I always had cooking. And then one year I'm like, you know what, I hate cooking. I'm removing <laughs> cooking. I don't want to learn to cook. I hate cooking. Right. I Just because everyone else it. is I doing it. Do it. <laughs> I did. I, I, I recognized that I felt like I needed to do it. Yeah. But I yeah. actually didn't want to do it. And, you know, and it was very freeing to say, I have 10 of things that I actually like to do on this list. Yes. Cooking is not one of them. Yes. It was, you know, it was remarkably freeing, and I think that kind of stuff is really important. How do you, you know, how do you listen to your own wants and needs and goals and desires? Yes. So that I just want to ask you real quick: Are you on a cell phone? There's a little bit of in and out. I am. Does it, oh, I'm sorry. That's is it okay. better. Yeah. If you just make oh, sure you keep sorry. it yes, close. I, I want to make sure we, don't we even have a. I don't even have a landline. You know, that's I, I said to your assistant, you know, landline is always best, but most people are getting rid of them at some point. No, yeah, you know, there will be one. none. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep, yep, yep. Listen, okay, so I want to read this quote um, that, that you said. You said, I've covered the world's most devastating stories throughout my career, stories of unimaginable human hardship and loss. And when I read that, of course, the very first thing that came to mind for me is – why are you able to do that and continue to do that over and over? Um, in other words, see that those kinds of stories and um, stay strong, you know, not not let it break you. Oh, I don't think it's ever about me. I mean, really, I, I, I never felt sorry for myself because I would get to go someplace. I thought I had such a, a luxury of trying to bring out real stories from people who had suffered real devastation, and I was never one of them. So I, I really felt very, um, very, very grateful. I, I, you know, I, I felt like I had a real job to do. I think when you feel like you have a real purpose and a real job, it, it's much easier. Do you, do you feel it's an obligation? You know, it's, it's obviously something you do well in bringing these stories and bringing them to light the way that you do. So do you feel it's an obligation? I think obligation has a negative connotation, and I don't. I think it's a real opportunity, and I think I do it well. So I feel very lucky that I get to do a job that I also like. You know, a lot of people have jobs that they don't like, and I really like my job. Yes. So let me ask you this. Have, is there one particular story that's, that's really etched in your memory, and if so, why? Mm. That's such a good question. Probably Hurricane Katrina. Or doing our Black in America documentary series. I think anything where it felt like you were really doing the work you're supposed to be doing. I felt like we were providing a real service as journalists. Um, so not just my work, but I think just in general as a reporter, I felt like this is exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And is there something about uh, the human spirit that you learned from covering that story? I think you learn the same thing, which is people are very much the same. Everybody wants safety and security and opportunity for their kids. You know, everybody, everybody in the globe, frankly, everywhere I've been, they all want the same exact thing. So, mm. you know, I, mean, I, I knew, having covered a lot of other disasters, that, that people would rebuild and they'd figure it out and they would bounce back because that's what people do. But um, 
you know, but I think in terms of just our service that we were able to provide, I know that I felt that I was doing something that was making me useful to the greater population. Yeah, and, you know, one of my questions was, you know, having been so many places and spoken to so many people from so many different backgrounds, you know, people at very high levels and then everyday folks, um, that, you know, I wanted to know what you thought is a commonality among all people. In other words, um, you know, and I'll let you answer that. What what sticks yeah, out in no, your it's mind? Yeah, a fantastic question. I, I think people are literally, not just people around the country, but people around the world are very, are very much the same. You know, we want opportunity. We want a chance. You want to have safety, right? You want to be able to walk down the street. You want to have security. You want to feel like you're heard. You want to be doing something productive and feel like you're valued. But I, this was true no matter where I was reporting from. Always the same thing. People really all wanted the same exact thing. So I think it's very consistent. I think human beings, you know, want to hope and dream for themselves and their families wherever they are. And uh, and certainly been what I've seen as a reporter. Right. Um, I, I want to go back for a second. Um, it's just, again, something that you shared that your was really kind of your parents' philosophy and, and what they would say with regard to race and, and people's attitudes towards it. And um, you said they would say, let's embrace, you know, where America is today and let's move forward. So where do we find the balance between doing that and then, you know, people will often say, you know, major events in the world we should never forget because they are lessons. So what is your philosophy for kind of keeping the balance of, yes, move forward, don't dwell on things that are that are injustices and not right, but at the same time, don't forget uh, those great lessons. Yeah, I don't think those are mutually exclusive, right? I think yeah. you can easily not forget things. And make sure you're always moving forward. I always tell the young people that I work with, you know, if you're always angry all the time, you will not get a lot done. You have to make sure to, to, to keep in mind where you are and what's going on around you. You have to make sure you understand injustice. I mean, I really get it. But you also have to be, you know, knocking things off your to-do list. You have to get stuff done. You have to get in there and do the work. You can't sit around and talk about stuff. You actually have to live and, and do things. So I think it is about navigating, uh, you know, the two making sure that you're not moving so fast that you forget important issues, but you're also, you're also not remembering so much and so mired in remembrance that mm. you forget that you have a life to lead and you have a lot of work to do. So I think that's the key thing to, you know, there's just a lot of work to do and you can do a lot of work while you're not forgetting some of the things and the people and the work that came before you. So do you ever get tired? <laughs> I'm listening to you. Oh, my God, you know, I'm tired all the time. Are you tired all the time? exhausted constantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't Absolutely. say you have such high energy. And, you know, really, you're, oh you're traveling and you're juggling. And you have four beautiful children. Um, you know, and I love that in a marriage to the same man for a long, long time, which I always think if you've been in the same marriage for a certain length of time, we should all get a trophy for that because yeah. it's hard. Um, and, and today that's not always the case. So how do you? Um, really, you're, you're juggling a lot, but you seem to really enjoy it. And maybe that's the key. Is it that you love the work so much that you're not feeling yeah, overwhelmed? Much. And I like the people. I yeah. don't even think it's the work. I think, you know, you make sure you work with good people and you feel like you're inspired and interested and there are challenges and some of those challenges knock you off your feet for a little bit and then you bounce back. I think it really is that. I think it's just about liking the work 
and then making sure you're selecting the right people to be in your world and, and be around you. Right. Okay, tell me if, if what are the things that um, you feel you don't do best. You know, we spoke about really knowing yourself and what you do well, and when you know that, you're you're going to really be, um, you know, successful oh in goodness. your career. So tell me some of the things. things. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, I mean, tons of things, because I make sure that as I hire people, uh, that they do those things well, because I know I'm not going to be doing them well. Uh, I'm not super organized. I really need people around me. Good in short bursts, but I think if you're looking at someone who's doing the long view, I have a team around me that really keeps us on track all the time. I'm terrible about doing budgets, which is fine because I don't do budgets. I have a team that does budgets. I'm great at reading budgets. Um, I do not set up my stories. We have great producers to do that. I do not run development. I have a great development team that does that. Uh, you know, so tons of stuff. I think the key is in recognizing what you don't necessarily either do well or want to do and making sure you're hiring great people around you for that. Do you, when you That's something I, I wanted to ask you about. What do you look for in your in your team? What, what kind of qualities do you look you know, for in the scrappiness, people? scrappiness, actually. Yeah? Scrappiness. We, you know, I really um, I, had, I just hired a fantastic assistant, and I think she's very scrappy. She's a hard worker, never worked in television, and is phenomenal. Smart, hardworking. I mean, I think if you hire for those kinds of great qualities, good person, great values, respectful person, you know, then you're in great shape because you can teach someone the job. You know, you can teach somebody the gig. It is trying to teach them. It's very hard to teach someone how to be respectful on the phone if they're not naturally respectful. It's very hard to teach somebody, uh, you know, how to be a good listener if they're not a good listener. Mm -hmm. But I can easily teach someone how to do television. That's that's fine. That is yeah. no problem at all. T tell me what you mean by scrappy. A hustler, you know, trying to get work done. If I send them out, if I said to somebody, listen, you need to find me this thing. By the end of the day, and I said it to five people, by the end of the day, that one person who has exhausted every little thing to get that done. So there's a great scene in the movie, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, and it's all about the young woman who has to go and find the latest Harry Potter book that's not actually out there. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's obviously insane, but I think the sentiment of, you know, she does she, every hook and crook to get something done, right? Like she's she's basically going to figure it out. And I think you, you obviously, I wouldn't send someone on a crazy assignment like that, but I would say, you know, what resources do you have that you can make this happen? Because a lot of people will say, you know, I, I just, you know, I, 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 here's what I don't like. I don't like when someone says, well, I left a message. <laughs> yeah, I called and I left a message. I mean, and you get that a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, that to me is unacceptable. You want someone who doesn't leave a message. Who says, I left a message. And then I figured, you know what? They're probably going out for lunch. Let me go to the office and see if I can find them. Then I thought, mm. blah, 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 blah. Then right. I knew yep. I had a girlfriend who lived nearby. So, I, you know, that's somebody who's a hustler, who's a hard worker, who figures it out. And so that's what I look for. You know, yeah. I look for people who, who are going to figure it out and, and who want to be part of a team that's willing to work hard to get stuff done. Yeah, resourceful, right? I, I love that Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So can I ask you, do you, you know, there's a lot of talk in the media about the millennials, the millennials, and um, I, have I, a, millennials. I have a couple I'm of millennials. millennials. <laughs> uh, they're awesome. Listen, I love millennials. First of all, they're not tired. Generally, you don't have a lot of kids yet. They're yeah. awesome. They're hardworking. They're mm -hmm. passionate. Yep. They want, you know, they want wonderful things out of life. They're really true believers in, I think, you know, spirit of getting stuff done. So I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of millennials. So you don't... Listen, it's it's uh, 23 after, forgive me. 
I just, I, I think we need to wrap up soon because I have a 3.30 meeting. They told me that this is going to go from 3 to up to 3.20. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're actually an hour show. <laughs> we go till 4. Oh, gosh. We, oh, no, no, no. my calendar for just 30 minutes. That's so crazy. Oh. So they told me 10 of, I'll send you the note, the 10 of to 20 after is what I was told. Well, that's okay. Listen, I'm glad to get you for any time, but I'll, I'll grab oh, my I'm new so business sorry. development director and we'll, we'll finish out the show. But, oh, oh. yes, no, we're, we're an hour show, but um, that's okay. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity. That's why we were kind of focusing on, on you for the first half, but I wanted to ask about your foundation and, uh, and of course, some of the stories that you're working on. So let me just give you an opportunity to, um, sure. to talk about anything talk about you'd like. That would be yes, great. please. Yeah. Listen, we started Powerful Foundation. We changed the name. It was the Starfish Foundation. But really, we realized that we were in the business of making young women powerful to, to understand and to advocate for themselves and understand how to become all that they wanted to be. And so we go around the country doing powerful summits. And uh, we're going to have our gala next month where we will celebrate some of our biggest champions and some of our most wonderful students who have, um, have done really, really well. And it's just a great way, I think, to invest in young women because we know when you invest in young women, you really are investing in a community. It's been one of the most wonderful things that my husband and I have done and so I encourage anybody who's interested in, in joining in with us to check us out at Powerful, H-E-R in the middle, middle powerfulfoundation.org. Okay. And, and we'll put that out there and share that uh, with our I listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you. And my apologies. I'll send you the um, I'll send you the note that I got, which was a 30-minute show. We have a, a meeting. I have another meeting at 3.30. I'm hmm. so sorry. That's okay. One thing I do well is pivot. <laughs> oh, I love – well, you know what? As you know, that's what you do have to do in this business, right? All you the time. do. You Suddenly do. You lose your, you lose your uh, cyber connection, and boom, that's you're doing right. a show by yourself. That's right. We'll, we'll, we'll make something happen for the second half. Um, but Soledad, listen hey. again. Thank you so much for for coming on and, and being with us. And and maybe we'll get you on another time when we can um, delve a little deeper. Because I did want to talk I about your that. work thank and you stories. Thank you so much. Thank you, Soledad. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. You bet. My pleasure. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a short break, everyone. And uh, when we come back, we're, I'm just going to wing it with Christina Jones, who happens to be in my studio. We'll be right back. This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a women's lifestyle conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhillsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F-O-L-E-Y-H-I-L-L-S-L-E-Y Group.com. Or call 610-238-6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. 
we offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860, and womentowatch.net. Um, if you were with us the first half of the show, you know that we had Soledad O'Brien on with us, and she had to, to leave. So uh, the irony is that I, I do happen to have a, a wonderful woman in the studio with me who's going to be on board with Women to Watch Media and really uh, kind of helping us take the show to the next level and and do some business development with us. So I just um, forced her to stay. (laughs) And she really is a woman to watch in her own right. So I'm going to welcome to the show Christina Jones. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. No pressure. I mean, really, she came on to to really just sit in and listen. And now she's she's the next guest for the next half hour. So pivoting. Right, right. We talk about pivoting a lot. You have to be able to do that. Um, so the other irony is Soledad spoke a little bit about the fact that, in, you know, when she was in her earlier years, um, she did not aspire to be in media or a journalist. She was uh, going to study pre-med. And um, Christina's career, and I'm going to let you describe exactly what it was, but Christina has worked uh, many years in the pharma industry, um, in business development and sales and marketing. And so she has some background in that. So um, just tell the listeners a little bit about your background and and where you went to school and what your major was. So um, when I first started out, I wanted to be pre-med because I had this vision of being a pediatrician and helping children and um, particularly young adolescent uh, girls and boys. And so when I started school, I quickly realized that one of the things about me is that I put my heart into everything I do. And I want as much as I wanted to be pre-med and I wanted to help children, I realized that it would be really hard for me because my heart would would break mm. um, yeah. if I were to. You're sensitive. Exactly. I'm very yeah. sensitive, yeah. and I and I love children. Um, so I was doing it for the right reasons, and I realized my limitations. Yes. Um, and so I pivoted. Good. Um, and I ended up majoring in psychology. Okay. And with the expectation of being able to work with adolescents to help them through difficult situations, um, I then pivoted again. And I did industrial organizational psych. So I learned how groups work well together um, and how to leverage people's strengths um, and how to build strong teams. So that just got me on this path of working in healthcare, working in pharma. Um, I worked for um, some managed care organizations. I worked for ad agencies. And ultimately, I ended up being in sales and marketing for pharmaceutical companies for about 20 years. Okay. And when did you graduate? 
Um, I graduated from Westchester um, mm-hmm. back in ninety in the nineties, early nineties. Yes, Tell, say that major again. Industrial. So I was industrial organizational psych. Yes, because I don't think many of our listeners know that that's a major yes. or you know yes. what that really is. So I was a, a psych major, and the um, research that I did was um, had to what the kinds of things that motivate people, um, and the kinds of things that they um, they gravitate towards. And how do you capitalize on those energies and those passions mm-hmm. and make them work productively? Yeah. Um, so it was it was uh, it was really interesting, and it and it all happened just because of you know these 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 as we call them these little pivots. You know, somebody introduced me. I started working with somebody. Um, I was working for a marketing company down in Westchester, and things just kind of evolved. I think you're a great example of something we talk about a lot on the show, and I, and I always want young girls to know that they do not have to be decisive about what they want to be when they grow up. Mm-hmm. Make that decision and stay with it, mm-hmm. right? Rarely does that happen. I think that if anybody had asked me you know, when I was in high school, what will the next 20 years look like? What will your career look like? What do you want to be when you grow up? I would have never imagined that I would have had the journey that I did over the last 25 years. And the thing that's so exciting about that is nothing was necessarily planned, mm-hmm. but everything was a decisive decision when I came to that crossroad. You know, yeah. And some, sometimes, and a lot of it is just taking, taking the plunge, taking a risk. You know, Somebody comes up to you and says, have you ever thought about? And you said, no, but tell me more. Yeah. And it leads you down a path. You know, Soledad said something about, you know, kind of um, knowing when you you meet someone, whether it feels right or not, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's such good advice to pay attention to that intuitive sense or feeling of, you know, this feels like an opportunity that's exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps... I'm not sure I want to, you know, get into any kind of uh, partnership with this person. And pay attention to that feeling, that mm-hmm. intuition. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you do make scary choices, but there's so much excitement in some of them. Yeah. And so let's, you know, we should probably talk about how you and I met. You know, yes. um, last month I had the um, the wonderful opportunity and honor to speak for, uh, for Pete's sake foundation's um, annual fashion gala. And uh, Trish Sinnott, who is a friend of mine, um, mentioned you as a volunteer for the For Pete's Sake Foundation, but she also knew your background. Yes. And I happened to mention to her, gosh, you know what, I, we're really doing some exciting things here, and I could use some help in, in the business development arena. That is not my forte. Mm-hmm. And um, so she made the introduction, and, and here we are. Mm-hmm. It's a great example of that. And we met. We met at that that, uh, at that fashion show, show. <laughs> and I knew, you know, I, there was good energy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so talk a little bit about, you know, what made you excited about that introduction and your interests in women in leadership, and why you thought, gosh, this might be a good opportunity and something I would like to to be supportive of. One of the things that I have been uh, very fortunate is that I've had some great women mentors. I've had women and men mentors, um, and one of the things, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was as much as you look forward and as, lo- as much as you strive to continue to climb, never forget where you came from and never forget to help those behind you. And so the thing that I love is the fact that you're always striving, but you're remembering that there are others that um, could, you know, could benefit from your sage advice. And you don't know why people come into your life. You know, it's either a reason, a season, or a lifetime. 
And when you meet them, you don't know why, mm. but they leave an impression. Right. And I've had so many conversations along the way in my career that I didn't think were very significant, just one-on-one discussions with a young lady at a college or someone that I was interviewing that I actually recommended um, not for the position I was hiring for, but for another opportunity that I thought they'd be a, a great fit for. Right. And they've come back to me and said, you know, you may not remember this conversation, but you once told me, and it really made a difference. Mm-hmm. It really helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so women's leadership and um, being an example and being a mentor has always been extremely important to me. Um, when I was in high school, I actually developed um, the first mentor program within my high school to help adolescents and help people that are trying to navigate those difficult high school years. You know, And that was something that I did when I was a junior in high school, um, where I identified the need for people to um, feel comfortable in having somebody to ask advice of. Yeah, why did you know that? Where did that come from in you? Let's go back a little bit to your yeah. your upbringing yeah. and, and your family a little yeah. bit. Tell me what, um, about the beginning. So I um, I was raised by two wonderfully strong people. Um, my dad was a CPA and worked in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and uh, my mom, um, after having children, decided that she wants to go to college, and she oh, uh, wow. went to school, and uh, actually, uh, right after she had me, and uh, so it took her 10 years to get through college, um, and then she went on to get her master's in guidance and counseling, um, and my dad was one of those people that always told me I could be anything I wanted to be, mm. um, and um, so uh, as much as they were supportive, they were extremely strict and very tough, um, okay. and not always the easiest people to talk to, mm. you know, when you needed, uh, you know, when you're... About feelings. Yeah, about and, feelings right, and all that right. stuff. All that stuff that actually matters. Yeah, but sort of, yeah. you know, telling you to, you know, just buck it up and move yes, on. Yes, um, yes, And um, But I had I had people who uh, who sort of took me under their wing, and um, I identified the, um, the the special relationships that, that can come from, um, from mentors. And so that all happened when I was very young, um, sort of having somebody take me under their wing and, and, and be able to talk to them and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, when I was thinking about pre-med, I didn't think that I could do it. Um, and I had these people who pushed me forward and said, yes, you can. Mm. Um, don't underestimate your own power and your own worth. Yeah. And so in doing that, you know, and then being in high school and seeing, um, you know, all of the things that go on, and this is back in the, you know, the 80s, the 80s and the early 90s. Um, actually, I guess, I guess it was the 80s. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of different things pulling you in different directions. So mm-hmm. I started this mentorship um, in the high school. And then I ended up in psychology in college, and then um, that just kind of developed into building um, women leadership initiatives within the companies that I worked in. Yeah, interesting. And I always say that I think a psychology degree should be a prerequisite for everyone, <laughs> because mm-hmm. no matter the field you're in, um, my husband hates it. Does he? <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's understanding people, right? Yeah. And and the best thing to know how to do is to communicate with others. Mm-hmm. And do it well. So let me ask you a question. You're a mom. You yes. have two wonderful children. Yes. Do you talk to them differently because of your your sense growing up that, you know, it, it wasn't um, always as easy to go to yeah. mom and dad about, you know, the tough stuff, things yeah. you were thinking about? Do you Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that every lesson um, is something you take with you. And some of them are really great lessons. And some of them are lessons that tell you don't do it that way. 
um, you know, one of the things that I also have two nieces as well that are a bit older. They're uh, 20 and uh, 17. And with all the children in my life, um, I've tried to instill in them the, um, the values that you can ask anything, never be afraid, um, and the conversations I have with them are very honest. Um, you know, and my, my, mine are little, you know, mine are, right. mine are eight and but six. But that's where it starts. Yeah, mine yeah. are eight and six. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we recently just transitioned to um, a new area. We moved from the city to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been an adjustment for everybody, particularly uh, my daughter, because she's been pulled out of an environment that she was very familiar with and very comfortable mm-hmm. with. Is she your six-year-old or She's eight-year-old? my eight-year-old. Oh, she's the oldest. Yeah, okay. she's um, very intellectually um, uh she has an intellectual perspective about things, and she needs to figure them out, and she's got that engineer mind where mm-hmm. everything's supposed to fit in a compartment. Mm. Um, and, you know, going from one school to another and being the new kid in school, everything doesn't really make sense a lot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, with my girls, um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching them that it is important to talk. It's important to ask questions. Um, I'll always be honest with you. I may not be able to um, answer your question right now, but I'll find the answer. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things with the eight-year-old is that I can't fix what's going on right now, but I can certainly help her find the tools to do it herself. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's one of those things, too. I see a lot of helicopter parenting where, you know, the the, the child comes home and complains about something, and automatically the parents jump on it and say, okay, I'm going to fix it. Mm You can't fix it for your kids. They've got to learn their survival skills to fix it themselves. Yeah. And they've got to feel confident in their own decision-making. Um, and I think Soledad touched on that as well. Yeah. Um, that, you know. that is what I think gives your kids confidence. It does. It put the onus on them, t- and, and when they fix a problem, it gives them so much, just such a boost to their confidence that they mm-hmm. can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we talk about the world today and the, and the issues, the big issues, um, what's the first at the forefront of your mind that you would like to see change for your kids now coming, you know, they're going to, I don't know what they're going to call their group. They're not going to be the millennials. Mm -hmm. They're going to be something else. Um, Is there something in particular that you would like to see change for them? Well, I think, and you and I have talked about this, you know, you're sort of raised in this environment where you're told you can have it all. And it's all supposed to be, you know, everything's supposed to work perfectly. And then you get to that place as a, as a woman in a career where you're juggling a thousand things. And you realize that there is no such thing as balance. Um, there's integration. You, know, you said it to me today. It's life. And I want my kids to realize that there's a, there's a world out there to discover that they can do anything. They have the power and the intelligence and the passion inside them to achieve greatness. Um, but understand that you can't spread yourself thin. You don't need to have it all because you don't have to do it all. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is the right thing. For you. For you. For you. And that's different for yep. everyone. Yep. And I and I think that, you know, so as I look at where's Alexandra going to be when she's 18 and in college or where is she going to be when she's 28 and, and you may be taking that next step in her career, my hope for her is that she does it in a way that, that, that brings her peace, that, that something that she's passionate about, something that she loves, mm-hmm. and that when she closes her eyes at the end of the day, she feels like she's had an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times we're so busy in building and working and striving that we forget to take account 
of the achievements and the success and the impact that we have. Well, and here's a good question. What What is success? You know, um, kids are, are taught uh, – uh, and they hear the messaging, you know, they, that they need to be successful in all that they do, whether it's sports or school or, you know, activities. And um, what is your definition of success? You know, it's, 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 it's a great question, Susan, because one of the things, and I've said this before, is success. My, and my, this is something my dad said to me. And I was in my 20s, early 30s. I was, you know, building a career in pharma. I was living all over the place. I was, I had just moved to Colorado. Um, I had a huge, huge territory managing a huge amount of business, and I was not happy. And, you know, my dad said to me, you know, I said, oh, you know, know, I'm so successful. And he said, but what is success? Success is not measured by the job that you have, the car that you drive, or the money that you make. Success is measured by the difference that you make. So at the end of the day, when you close your eyes, do you feel that you made a difference? And when he said that to me, you know, I've, I'm spinning a thousand balls and managing a thousand things. It didn't hit me as strongly as it probably should have. Mm-hmm. But after he passed and I really took stock of my life, I realized that his words were brilliant because I wanted to make a difference. I didn't want to just work. I didn't want to build a career. I didn't want to just, um, you know, make a lot of money. Make a lot of money. Manage a lot of people. Go to big fancy dinners with big fancy clients. At the end of the day, I wanted to feel like I had made a difference. Um, And because of that, you know, I kind of shifted and I started working in diabetes because my father had passed away from diabetes. And so I had taken a year off. I had done some consulting. I went down to the Caribbean, lived there for a little bit. Um, Fun. That was fun. Yeah. Um, But I needed to get back. And and I started working within the diabetes area um, in the effort to try to help educate and empower people to take charge of their lives and charge of their health. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting how we talk about pivots and the paths that come along. Um, I would have never thought that I would have done that. Um, but I wasn't feeling at the end of the day that my success was measured by the difference I was making. Mm. You know, and that's what makes life so exciting, isn't it? Kind of not knowing, mm-hmm. you know, what these decisions are going to, where they're going to lead us. Um, if you're just tuning in, I just want to um, let everyone know I'm speaking with Christina Jones, who is sitting in for Soledad O'Brien, <laughs> who had to who had to step away. Um, and uh, Christina is really, you know, has some wonderful words of wisdom herself to offer. Um, if you're listening, and one of the things, you know, I pulled together some statistics that I wanted to talk to Soledad about, and I thought you and I could talk mm-hmm. about them. Um, I often say, you know, why why are we doing this show? Why is it important to tell the stories of women who are, quote, successful? What is it we're trying to achieve? And to me, there's kind of three key areas that I personally would love to see women have more impact in, and that's um, politics, um, economics, and peace negotiations. Um, And so some of the statistics I found were there was a study done by the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Um, and it was with 22,000 publicly traded companies, which, which is amazing, in, in 91 different com- countries. And it determined that having women in leadership positions is directly tied to stronger profits. So, you know, when we talk about women and, and getting them into more leadership roles in, in business um, and economics, 
you can't talk about that without talking about the fact that they have families and, and often children. And, and how can we make that happen in a way that isn't too much for them? Um, so just tell me, you know, your thoughts on that when we know now from these studies that, that really there are um, stronger profits with companies that have women, more mm -hmm. women in leadership. What does that mean to you and why do you think it's important that we, we try to encourage more of that? Well, I mean, I definitely think particularly as we see more of our young adults a young adult women going into these STEM topics and professions of science and technology and, and um, that we need to have women that are um, helping to run these organizations because when you look at some of the pharma companies, which I'm most familiar with, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there are some biotech, there are some science, there are some pharma companies that are putting in resources to help um, women in leadership positions manage having families. You know, there's a lot of companies that are looking at that, um, at the uh, the alternative work situations of being able to work remotely, um, being able to um, work uh, in the evening with the conference calls in London. And um, so I think that we should see more women coming into these uh, into these areas, particularly in politics. And I think that, you know, the last election sort of showed us um, a, a groundswell of support for that mm -hmm. um, and a need for that, I think, too, because I think that there's a broader um, there's a broader picture, there's a broader lens that a woman looks at or approaches a problem with. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you talked about the peace process and um, and I would I would definitely love to see more women sort of getting um, getting in positions where they're ambassadors and, and, and they're, they're diplomats in, in uh, some of these other countries. Yeah. You know, tell me what you think. What is it that women do well um, that, that's different from men? I think that, um, you know, somebody said this to me when I, was, um, as a, when I was at one of my pharma companies that, you know, when you're, when you're a gentleman growing in your career, um, a lot of times you have one thing. And it's your career that you're really focusing your energies on. And, you, and this may go back towards like, um, you know, maybe a generation ago. But it was that was your job. Your job was to go in, um, build your career, make the money, provide for your family. Um, and when a woman is in that same role, there's a thousand things that she's managing. She's managing her career, but she's also thinking about her parents. She's thinking about her children. She's thinking about the house. She's thinking about the people that work for her, and are mm. they happy? And are they um, are they are they working to the highest level of productivity because their needs are being met? And are the, is she harnessing the skills of her workforce effectively? So, I feel like when a woman goes into a, in, into a um, into a role, the lens upon which she looks at things sometimes has a little bit more shades to it um, than, than her counterpart. And I think that that's not always the case, um, but certainly I have seen, you know, two people approach the, 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 the same problem, and the woman's approach to it was much broader in thinking about all of the different scenarios in order to get to the best solution. Mm. And that natural ability to, to, to bring all views and, you know, um, voices to the table, right? I think that that is something that women naturally do um, that men don't necessarily do. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk all the time about, uh, you know, being multitaskers. Mm -hmm. And you just described, as you were describing all the things women think about, I thought, wow, that really is 
is something we take into consideration, um, not just the task at hand, but the people that are in the room and what they're personally going through, right? All of that emotional stuff um, is important, I think, in helping to make the right decisions in the end. Um, one of the uh, statistics I read about, you know, the peace process is that 35% increase in the probability of an agreement lasting at least 15 years when women are have a seat at that table. That's huge, mm-hmm. 35%. Um, you know, in today's climate, you know, with what's happening, you know, um, terrorism and, and us, you know, being aware and trying to figure out ways to combat that, but not only do it in a way that makes sense, but have these conversations around it can be very tricky. Um, what do you think women can contribute to these discussions that are going to kind of help that peace process move a little bit more quickly? I think the human- humanitarian side of things, um, you know, there's, there's the black and white of the business um, and the financials, but there's the people that contribute to the solutions and what are their stories and what is the impact of those choices, not on this generation, but on generations two, two generations from now. Um, so when you look at the peace process, and again, you know, it's interesting because we talk about, you know, conflicts that spur up. And what we realize is that those conflicts have been going on, you know, hundreds of years. Thousands, and we don't, thousands of yes, years. Right, and we don't right. know the full history. What that's we right. know is that the U.S. has been involved for the last 10 years. Yeah. But it's 10 years of a 400-year conflict, you know. And so um, so I think that, um, you know, one of the things that having a woman at the table can, can help benefit is um, all of the different humanitarian considerations, the business considerations, the economic considerations, but the social considerations as well. You know, I think it's tough for, for young girls today um, talking about all of these big heavy topics that they understand that they're needed. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that now more than ever, we need women, you know, and, and I'd love to know what your convert. I know your children are only eight and six, mm-hmm. but when you think about as eight, eight, an eight-year-old, especially mm-hmm. your daughter who's kind of analytical and already mm-hmm. thinking about these things, what kind of conversations do you want to have with her to help boost the self-esteem, the mm-hmm. confidence piece of it? She will have the intellect and she can, you know, get the grades and do the work, but what are you going to say to her to really help build her self-esteem um, moving forward? Well, I think one of the things, and it goes back to where is she in the decision process towards helping to make to help making the right choices? Um, and when she sees injustice or she sees something that doesn't feel good in the gut, how does she stand up for what she believes in? Um, you know, and one of the things that she'll say to me is, Mommy, I stand up for myself and I stand up for others. And that can't be, that can't make me prouder. Wow. And, that is amazing. You know, and an she, eight-year-old would yeah, say that. You know, yeah. she'll say, "I'll stand up for myself and I'll stand up for others." And her teachers and and her counselors have, have said that to me that, mm. you know, when she's when they've experienced her in a situation where there's somebody new or there's somebody who's been given an injustice, she'll stand up and say, "You know, that wasn't very nice. That wasn't right. You could have said that nicer. You could have done that nicer. You could have helped them." Um, and you know, and her confidence can be strong sometimes. But then you take her away from everything she knows and puts her in a brand new school where she doesn't know a single soul, and her confidence was took a big hit. 
And um, the, that's understandable, right? Yep. 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 And typical. Um, and so this year there's been a lot of discussions about who are you, what's important to you, how do you stand true to what you believe in, um, and, you know, and, and the difference of understanding what's right and wrong and, the, and staying true to what you know is right. Just because other people are doing it, just because other kids may think that that's the right choice, you need to decide, is that your choice? Um, and I think that if we need to be having that discussion with our children about, you know, you got to teach them how to make the right choices, but then you got to give them enough rope to hang themselves um, and put them in situations where they have to ask themselves, I'm at a crossroad, what is the right choice? And am I brave enough to stand up? And that builds their confidence. And having, you know, having a good village around you of adults that recognize when a child um, is standing up and, and, and acknowledging that mm-hmm. um, and, and, and having good examples around them. I mean, one of the things that I loved about the environment that she was raised in was we had a lot of strong women, strong women and men who had children but gave those children the skill sets to make good choices. Did they always make good choices? Absolutely not. No. But my kids know that they can uh, they can go to any of those adults and get advice. Yeah. Listen, I have to thank you so much for jumping in for, for Solo Dad this afternoon. It was a great discussion, and I welcome you to the Women to Watch media team, Christina thank Jones. You. We're going to do some great things. That's, that's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Be sure to check out our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two watch.net, and have a great week. Put yourself in words unspoken.